Today's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 13, verse 8 to 14. Owe no one anything except to love one and to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of God. Vinny, thanks for reading scripture to us. Uh, before we begin, just a quick plug for the book table downstairs. Uh, as you might have guessed, uh, we're going to focus on the second coming a bit today in our text. So I'd like to just recommend this book for us. It's called The Momentous Event. It's for sale at the book table downstairs. I, I read this when I was a pretty young Christian, and this is one of really better books I've read on the second coming. So if you want to find out more about the second coming of Christ, what that means for us, what does scripture say about it? This is an excellent book. So the, the momentous event, and it'll be at the book table downstairs after the service. Let me pray for us. Let's join our hearts to pray as we prepare ourselves to receive the word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, even as we've sung, we now pray. Father, we ask that you would speak through your word, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are open to your truth. Father, we know that without your work, we will receive this merely as words. But Father, by the work of your Spirit, you would grant us understanding. We pray that in your light, we will see light. So Father, we ask that you would speak powerfully, speak into our hearts, and not just give us knowledge, but give us wisdom to apply your word so that our lives would be different. Our lives will be lived for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before I became a pastor, I mean, some of you may know this, I worked as a journalist for about eight years. And for two of those years, I was doing shift work. I was working the night shift as a sub-editor in the newsroom. So for a sub-editor, your, your work kind of begins later in the day because you, you wait for all the stories to come in and then you begin to edit them and lay them out on the page. So, so my work day would begin at about 3 p.m., and I'll finish work past midnight, and, and this happened for about two years, right? So two years of, of the night shift like that. I would go to bed at about 3 a.m. You know, after getting home from work, take a few hours to wind down, and by the time I get to bed, it would be about 3 a.m., and I'll wake up at noon and get ready to go to work after that. 
so, so for two years, uh, my body clock was out of sync. You know, I had supper more often than I had breakfast. You know, and I was asleep for half the day and awake for half the night. Right? So, so that, was my, that was my life for about two years. You know, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm not on shift work anymore. Uh, I think some of you are on shift work, and I think you, you kind of understand what I'm, what I'm talking about, this strange cycle that you go through during the week. I want to ask us, have we experienced desynchronosis? Have you ever experienced desynchronosis? More commonly known as jet lag. <laughs> Working the night shift, it felt like I had permanent jet lag for two years. You know, many of us have experienced jet lag before. You know, we, we, we take a long flight, we cross multiple time zones, and then when we get to our destination, our body clock is completely off. Right? We, we are disorientated, we're tired during the daytime, and then we can't get to sleep, we can't go to bed at night. You know, I, I remember one, particular, one particularly bad bout of jet lag when I went to bed at about 4 p.m., missed dinner, and was wide awake and hungry at about 2 in the morning. And I just couldn't get back to bed after that. I think some of us have experienced this before, after a long uh, stretch of travel. And you know, if you look at that word, desynchronosis, the, the technical term for jet lag literally means to be out of step with time. Right? It's desynchronized, right? To, to be out of step with time. That, that's what jet lag is. Be out of step with time. Jet lag is a disorder that keeps us from doing the right thing at the right time. You know, we, the right thing is to sleep. We can't sleep. The right thing is to eat. We have no appetite. Right? That, that's jet lag. Keeps us from doing the right thing at the right time. Now, this passage is interesting because this passage talks about jet lag. This passage talks about spiritual jet lag. You know, we suffer from spiritual jet lag when we're not living according to the time. You know, we're spiritually asleep when we should be spiritually awake. So the question as we come to this text this morning is, do we suffer not from desynchronosis, but do we suffer from spiritual jet lag? Now, Paul writes these words here in these verses to help us to avoid spiritual jet lag. He wants us to know the time, and he wants us to do the right things at the right time. And in fact, you know, this part of this bigger section that we've been looking at in Romans, right, that this is what it means to offer to God our spiritual worship. And, he, and here Paul says what that looks like is doing the right thing at the right time, is to know the time in which we live. So what does it mean to worship God by living in the light of the day? What does that mean? So this passage tells us just two things, live in love and live with the future in view. And then we're just going to spend some time thinking about these two things, live in love and live with the future in view. So, live in love. Uh, if you look at verse 8, you, you notice how it follows on from verse 7. You know, verse 7, uh, Paul says, you know, pay, to, pay to all what is owed to them. And then he goes on to say about how it is good to fulfill our obligations to the government, to the authority, as, as uh, Pastor Ian preached on last Sunday. Paul says it's good to uh, repay, our, to, to, get, to pay our taxes, to honour authority. And then Paul says, just as it's good to honour our government in that way, to, to, 
to give them what they, we owe them, it's also good to repay our debts. Right? Verse 8, owe no one anything. Now, when, when Paul says owe no one anything, he's not saying that we should never incur any debt at all, but rather he's saying that when we do incur a debt, make sure that we pay back the debt in an honest and timely way. Right? So owe no one anything. But there is a debt, Paul says, that we can never repay. We can never repay this debt. Paul says this debt is the debt of love that we owe to one another. Right? He, goes, he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except, except to love one another. Now, Origen, an early Christian scholar who lived in the 3rd century, he said these words, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. Right? Owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, now this is an interesting thing to think about, right? to owe love. Now, if, if, if others have been kind to us, we, you know, we, we understand what it means to feel indebted to them, right? Because they have shown us kindness and we feel that we owe them love in return. But, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Uh, the, the command to owe love to one another goes beyond that, right? Paul is not saying owe people who love you love in return, but rather he's making a, a general statement that says we should owe love to one another regardless regardless of whether the other person has done anything loving or good for us. Now, we might think, gosh, Paul, this, this sounds quite daunting, but how, how on earth did I get into this debt in the first place? Why should I owe love to someone else, especially someone else who've maybe not done anything good for me at all? Why should I owe them love? Well, it's not because others have somehow earned our love. Otherwise, why would Jesus command us to love our enemies? If we only owed love to those who loved us, why would Paul in Romans 12 command us to bless those who persecute us? Now, we owe love because God has loved us so generously. In, in Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says these words, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, still enemies of God, Christ died for us. God did not owe us love, but His love displays His grace to us. And now Paul says to us the same thing. We owe love to one another. Jesus was crucified not for the lovely, but for the unlovely. And Jesus was crucified for undeserving sinners like us. He died the death that we should have died so that we might be forgiven and made right with God. And, and now Jesus says to us, those of us who have received this love from Him, He says to us, love one another just as I have loved you. you know, just as I have loved you. Not, not because the other person deserves your love, not because the other person has somehow earned your favour, 
but just as I have loved you. So when Paul talks about owing love, he's talking about the debt of love that we owe to Jesus. We owe Jesus a debt of love that can never, never be repaid. <clears throat> you know, his, his love compels us, right? His, his love obligates us to, to love one another with the same self-sacrificial, gracious, merciful, compassionate, and boundless love that we have freely received from Him. You know, this, this is why we owe love to one another. You know, when we, when we love one another, it, it shows that we understand the magnitude of Jesus' love for us. When we love one another, it shows that we are thankful for the love that He has shown us. When we love one another, it shows that we have actually received His love. Because someone who has not received the love of Christ will not know what it means to love one another in this way. Now, I love the, the two stanzas from this old Isaac Watts hymn, Alas, and Did My Saviour Bleed? You know, Isaac Watts writes in this hymn, Thus might I, thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears, but drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. You know, that, this all that I can do. You know, it, it ties in really well with what Paul has been saying in Romans 12, right? By the mercies of God, this debt of love that we can never repay, by the mercies of God, give yourselves away. Give yourselves away. How do you give yourselves away to Christ? You love one another. Love one another. Now, how do we love one another? You know, we've, we've seen what this looks like in Romans 12, 9 to 21. You know, we heard from this a few weeks ago. So that passage gives us some specific examples of what it means to love one another. But, but here in this text, Paul doesn't quite tell us how, but he focuses instead on the why. You know, this is why we should love one another. And Paul says we love one another because this is how we obey God. It says in verse 8, second half of verse 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul links law and love. Now, when Paul says the law, he's referring to the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, brought them into uh, the desert. At Mount Sinai, as they were standing around the mountain, God came down, spoke with Moses, and He gave Moses the law to give to Israel. And, and God rescued Israel so that they might worship Him. And, and how do they worship Him? God gave them His law to show them what worship looks like. And then the Ten Commandments, they, they summarize God's law. The Ten Commandments give us a, a, a brief summary of what it looks like to worship God and to follow Him as His people. Paul quotes several of the commandments here in verse 9. He mentions the ones that prohibit adultery, murder, stealing, and coveting. But, but, he, but this is not a comprehensive or exhaustive list because he goes on to say, you know, these and any other commandment are summed up in this word. So Paul is going to give us a summary of what the commandments actually say. 
So what's a summary of the commandments? You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Right, so how, how do we summarise the, especially the second table of the commandments that deal with interpersonal relationships? How do you summarise all that? Paul says love. Love. That's from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. We are to love, Paul says, one another. You know, look, look around. Right? You know, part of coming to church is not just looking to the front, but it's also looking around. As, as you see your brothers and sisters, you know, this, this is the family that God has brought us into by His grace, and this is the family that we are called to love. This is the one another that Paul mentions in this text. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the spiritual family of the church. And, and then it's after that, in, in verse 8, uh, Paul changes the word, actually. It doesn't come out in our ESV version very clearly, but actually says, oh, no, verse 8 reads like this, Oh, no one anything except to love one another for the one who loves the other. That, that's, that's the literal word that's used in the second half of verse 8. The one who loves the other. You know, it's the word heteros, which is where, where we get the word heterogeneous, you know, different from us. So the one who loves the other fulfills, has fulfilled the law. So Paul says, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, love one another, but, but not just love one another, love the other. Meaning, love those who are not like you. Love the other. Love someone who is not, who doesn't look like us. Love someone who doesn't belong to the same season of life as, as, as us. So whether you're younger or older, whether you're single or married, whether you are Singaporean or a non-Singaporean, right? you, you love the other person. You love someone who's different from you. So the kind of love that, that Paul speaks of here in this text is a love that moves beyond our comfort zones. Right? Because we like to love people who are like us. I mean, that, that's easy, right? We, we kind of feel that we can relate to them better. We, we don't have to cross so many cultural lines so it's, you know, it's easier to love people who are just like us. That's why we talk about affinity groups. But, but here Paul is calling us to a love that goes beyond that. He says, love those who are not like you. Move out of your comfort zones. Move out of your familiar social circles. Move out of your accustomed long-time friendships and begin to welcome those who are not like you into your circle of love. And, and you see why, this is, why Paul says this, because he's thinking of what he's about to say in Romans 14 and 15. So love the other. Love someone who's different. You know, this, this is the reason why, if you, if you think about our care groups, our CGs, this is why we are encouraging our CGs to be increasingly diverse. Right? To have single and marriage together in a group, to have young and old in the same group, different nationalities, different cultures, different backgrounds. I mean, wh why do we want to do that? You know, it's actually, more, it's actually harder to do that. You know, it, it's easier to have groups that are just homo homogenous. So why do we go through the trouble of encouraging groups that are diverse? I, I think because we're trying to be faithful to what Paul is saying in this text. Love the other. Don't just hang out with people who are like you. Don't just meet in a CG that just looks like you. But 
leave your comfort zones and love those who are different. Encourage diversity in your groups. Now, love is more than an emotion or feeling. Paul links love to obedience because love is the heart of God's law. You know, this, this is not immediately obvious to us because most of the commandments are stated as don'ts, right? You know, this, do not do this, do not do this. I mean, the commandments are stated negatively and, and we don't always understand how don'ts communicate love because oftentimes we, we think being told no is not loving, right? We, we, we think that if, if I love you, I'll just say yes to you. That's love, right? No, but, but it's not. Prohibitions, Paul, as Paul shows us in this text, prohibitions can express love. Uh, let me give you a just very everyday example. If I tell my sons, stop playing on the road, that's a prohibition that expresses love, right? Stop playing on the road, otherwise you get killed by a passing car. Right? I, I love them and therefore I tell them to stop playing on the road because I, I, I want, I'm concerned about their safety and well-being. Right? So prohibition, expressing love, I keep them from danger. So friends, love is not the absence of prohibitions. Love is the presence of good boundaries that protect us, that keep us from harming ourselves and keep us from harming others. Right? Love, love is like the fence. You know, like, you know, if you've ever visited a really scenic place in the mountains, and, and you stand at the edge of the cliff to, to just observe and, and take in the view. Love is like that fence, right? You know, the, the fence doesn't keep you from enjoying the scenery. The, 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 the fence actually enables you to enjoy the scenery safely. That's the, that's the commandments that Paul's talking about. And, and these commandments are summarized by love. This is what love looks like. So the commandments not only prohibit sin, but the commandments help us to understand what love actually looks like in practice. So as we think, you know, love does not commit adultery. Right? So, so what does it mean? Love is pure. Love is truthful. Love is faithful. Love does not murder. So what does that tell us about love? Love is slow to anger. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is compassionate. Love does not steal. So what does that tell us about love? Love is generous. Love is unselfish. Love is self-giving. Love does not covet. So what does love do? Love seeks the good of others, even at the expense of ourselves. Love is happy when others are blessed, even though we ourselves are not enriched in the same way. So, as, as Paul explains the law in this way, we realize that love is more than avoiding what is wrong and hurtful. It, do, it does that, but it does more than that. Love fulfills the law. Jesus has saved us to love and obey. A loving life is an obedient life. And a loving church is an obedient church. 
And the reverse is true as well. An unloving church is a disobedient church. Now, this link between love and obedience is very helpful because love without obedience leads to what? Just sentimentality, right? You kind of just feel certain feelings, but it's all just sentiment. Love without obedience leads to sentimentality, but, but what about the reverse? What about obedience without love? You know, just, I, I'm aware of where I'm speaking. You know, if, if I was speaking in a, maybe perhaps in a, in a secular context, you know, I, I would have to emphasize how love needs obedience, but I understand I'm speaking to a, a church, and we all understand to some extent obedience. But maybe what we don't understand as much is the link between love and obedience. You know, obedience without love, what does that bring us? Obedience without love leads us to mere external compliance and obedience without love may even lead us to legalism, to become really harsh on the people around us because we think they don't match up. So we are hard on them. So that's obedience without love. You know, Singaporeans are really good at obedience without love, right? We, we say things like, just follow law, and, right? Just do what the law says. You don't have to love, just, just do what it says, right? We, we kind of, that's how we honor the government, right? Yeah, just follow law. I mean, they're in charge, too bad, right? That's obedience without love. You know, like, for example, let me, let me give you this example from travel. I mean, most of us have flown in planes before. What do they always say at, at takeoff and landing? Please fasten your seat belts. Stow your baggage under the seats in front of you or in the cabins overhead. And then what? Please stow your tray tables. Put them in the upright position, right? Your seats in the upright position. Stow away your tray tables. You just wonder, why do they make such a big deal about stowing away your tray tables, right? I mean, you know, sometimes it's a bit irritating, right? You, you, you could be working on a laptop, reading a book on, on the tray table, and then, you know, it's getting... You know, you're really into it, and then suddenly they tell you, can you please keep your tray table? It's like, why do I have to keep my tray table? It sounds so incidental. Why, why make such a big deal about keeping your tray table when you fly? It seems very uh, arbitrary, right? Like, who, which airline, like, how, how did they decide that tray tables are to be stored away? Why, why is that so vital? So, but we do it anyway because we don't want to get into trouble, we don't want to make a scene, so, so we just throw our tray tables away. But we don't really feel anything about it. But friends, what if, what if I told you that stowing away your tray table is the way you show love? It's, it's how you show love. You think, what on earth am I talking about? Right? Like, how does that show love? Well, the reason why we have to stow away our tray tables is because when our tray tables are down, they, they keep the people, in the case of an emergency, they actually obstruct the, the passageway for other people to get out into the aisle, right? In the case of emergency, you don't want to be climbing over tray tables in order to get to the aisle and exit the plane. So by stowing away your tray tables, you're actually loving the passengers around you. You're making it easier for them to leave the plane in the case of an emergency. That's a loving thing to do. Right, so you don't have to just merely comply with the external requirement 
to stow away your tray table, but you can love your fellow passengers. You can be concerned about their well-being by doing that simple act of stowing your tray table away. You know, think about that next time you fly. Right? Think about that the next time you fly. You know, that, that's a very ordinary example. But, but that's, what, that's what Paul is saying about our obedience. We don't simply obey because it's our duty to obey. Yes, it is our duty, but it's not only our duty to obey. Paul says we, we, we delight in the law of God because that's how we love. That's how we love. That's how we love God. And that's how we love others. So love and obedience. Friends, we, we have to think about this. Do we love external compliance to the forms of Christianity more than we love people? Do we love just hearing what the Word of God says more than we actually love people? The Pharisees, the Pharisees loved the Word of God. The Pharisees loved hearing the truths of God. The Pharisees loved being religious more than they loved people. And, and Jesus calls them out again and again. Jesus calls them out. Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you missed the whole point of the law. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, you are scrupulous over the little things, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what are they? Love, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. So friends, we can follow the letter of the law without actually loving the very people whom the law was given to serve. Think about that. And remember, love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. So this is how we live in light of the day, right? We, we live in love, this kind of love that Paul speaks of. Second point, we live with the future in view. Now, this, this point, live with the future in view, you know, in some ways it's a bit superfluous to say that because all of us here, without exception, all of us in this room, we, we live with the future in view. The question is, what future? Right? Every one of us, if you think about all your choices that you've made this past week, if you think about all your actions that you've done this past week, they, a lot of them have been done with the future in view. Right? We, our choices and actions are shaped by what we expect will happen in the days, in the months, and in the years to come. Our hopes for tomorrow shape how we live today. The question is, what are we hoping in? What are we hoping in? What are we hoping in that really shapes how we live today? 
You know, the, the futures that we expect, we can't be completely certain that they will actually take place. Right? The job that I'm hoping for, the relationship that I'm hoping for, the family that I'm hoping for, the retirement that I'm setting my hearts on, the, the school that I really want to get into that I'm setting my hopes on, the appearance that I'm hoping in. Friends, friends, there's no guarantee that our hopes and expectations and our futures that we want will be given to us. But, but Paul says in this passage there is one future that is 100% guaranteed. There is one future that is certain. And Paul says we need to know this future and then we need to allow this future to shape how we live today. Not, not the futures that we think about and expect and want, but this future. What he's going to talk about here in these verses. Paul wants, to live, Paul wants us to live with this future in view. That's why he says in verse 11, we must know the time. Know the time. Yep, it's five past ten. <laughs> so what time is it? What time is it? You know, as a parent, I'm constantly urging my two boys to know the time, right? Hey boys, it's homework time, it's dinner time, it's bedtime, it's time to wake up, it's time to go to school. You know, I'm, I'm constantly exhorting them every day to know the time. I feel like parenting is a constant battle to get my children to know the time. Do the right thing at the right time. And Paul says, so it is with the Christian life. What time is it? Paul says several things about the time in verses 11 and 12. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Verse 11. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Second half of verse 11. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. You know, all these are descriptions of the time. So Paul says, it's time to wake up. Let me see if anyone's sleeping. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's time to wake up because the night is over. The night's almost over. The day is near. The, the night refers to this present age. What's the state of this present age? This, this present age is marked by sin, by brokenness, by death. Right? Paul says this present age is almost over. And the day that Paul speaks of is nothing other than the day of the Lord that the Bible talks about, both Old and New Testaments. And, Paul, and on that day, God Himself will come to judge and to save. Paul says, Jesus is coming back, friends. The day is almost here. Jesus is coming back and He will bring this present evil age to an end. And He will usher in the age to come. And Paul says, we live in the overlap of these two ages. The present age and the coming age. No, it's a bit like dawn, you know, where, where, where the sun kind of peaks over the horizon. And you know the night is almost over because you see the sun beginning to rise. You see the rays of the sun begin to bathe the earth with its orange glow. It's not quite there yet. It's getting near, but you know it's coming. So when you see the sun rising that way, you, you, you get out of bed. You're going to get ready to meet the day. So, so that's the image 
that Paul gives to us in these verses. The sun is already rising. It's not yet fully risen, but it's already rising. So the question for all of us, friends, is will the day of the Lord be a day of great grief or will it be a day of great joy? So think about that. Will the day of the Lord be a day of great grief or will it be a day of great joy? And the Bible records both kinds of responses to the day of the Lord. There's no middle ground. It all depends on where we stand with the Lord. It all depends on our relationship with Him. All of us have turned away from God. All of us have failed to worship Him. He is holy and right to judge us. But friends, the, the good news of the Gospel is that King Jesus has already come to bear the judgment for us by dying on the cross. If we refuse this gospel, if we refuse to believe in this king, then what, what remains for us is that we ourselves will bear that judgment when the day of the Lord comes. We bear ourselves uh, that punishment. But for those who believe in Jesus, his return will be a day of celebration not condemnation. So where do we stand with Jesus? If we belong to Jesus, Paul says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. You know, the Bible speaks of our salvation in past, present, and future tense. We have been saved, past tense, because Jesus has made us right with God, died and is risen, and by believing in Him, we have been justified, past tense. We are being saved, present tense, because the Spirit is now transforming us to become more and more like Christ. That's an ongoing work that awaits completion. Then we will be saved, future tense, because we will be glorified together with Christ when He returns. And, and this, this is the tense that Paul focuses on in this text. We will be saved. Our salvation is coming nearer. And every passing day, you know, we are an hour and 15 minutes nearer to eternity than when we began our service this Sunday. Every passing moment brings us nearer to Jesus and to glory. So don't lose heart. When we get discouraged, know that Jesus is nearer every day. Our present struggles and sorrows will end. Hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. He's coming back to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And Paul says to us, don't be spiritually sleepy as we wait. Jesus says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You know, being awake is more important than being woke. How should we live? with this future in view. Paul says, you know, how do we live with this future in view? Paul says, be, be, be dressed, right? Be properly dressed. You know, once, once my family had to catch a very early flight the next day, you know, we, we had to leave for the airport really early, so what did we do? 
we dressed our two boys in their daytime clothes. Then they went to sleep in their daytime clothes so that when, they, when we woke up, they could just get out of the door straight away. They don't have to get up and get dressed, right? So you kind of save about 10 minutes in the morning. Right? So that's what Paul's saying here, right? Hey, the, the night time is over. Don't stay in your pyjamas. Right? You, you wouldn't go out to work wearing your pyjamas. Or maybe some of you would like to do that, but I don't know. But, but Paul says, you know, get dressed for work. You know, get dressed for action. Get dressed for the daytime. Take off your pyjamas. Take off your nighttime clothes and put on your daytime clothes. So I says in verse 12, so then let us put off, right? Literally, you know, take off, cast off the works of darkness and put on, like clothing, put on the armor of light. Now, what are the works of darkness? Anything associated with this present evil age? Words, actions, attitudes, the way of thinking, the way of life associated with this present evil age. Paul says, take that off. And let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You know, Paul brings out these examples. Why? Because these, these examples are, they speak of people pursuing personal pleasure. It's essentially, it's people chasing after food, drink, and sex which probably dominate most of the Google searches in the world. Food, drink, and sex. So instead of chasing after these things for self-gratification, to pursue personal pleasure, Paul says, put those things away because the night is almost over. Now, once we lived for these things, once we lived for personal pleasure, but Paul says the time to live for personal pleasure is over. The day is at hand. Instead of being preoccupied with food, drink, and sex, let's live for Christ. Let's live for someone else. Live for a new master. That was our old way of life. We no longer belong to the night. We belong to the day. So live as those who belong to the daytime. Don't be spiritually jet-lagged. If we follow Christ, then what, what God is calling us to is a lifestyle of repentance as we're putting off the old ways and we're putting on the ways of Christ. So Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Verse 14. And the, the word provision literally means to plan or to think about something beforehand. Right, so that's what Paul is saying to us. Don't even plan to sin. Right? It doesn't just say don't, don't sin, but just don't even plan to sin. Don't, in your mind, don't toy with temptation. Don't, don't toy with the pleasures of sin in your mind. Paul says our battle with sin goes beyond what we actually do, but our battle with sin is fought in our hearts in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our motivations, in our desires. Right? Make no provision. Don't think about sin. Don't plan to do it. You know, we, we talk about sin like we talk about chocolates sometimes, right? And we talk about food as sinful. 
And what, what we mean by that is that it's okay to indulge in sinful food as long as it's just once in a while. And Paul says don't, don't have that attitude to sin. Don't, don't treat sin like chocolates and think that a little indulgence now and then is all right. We, we wouldn't tell an alcoholic who's, recover, who's recovering from his addiction to drink that it's okay because it's just one drink. In the same way, we are recovering addicts. Once we were addicted to sin, and Paul says, if you are, re- if you are recovering addict, don't even go there. Right? Make no provision for the flesh. Uh, because Jesus has set us free. He's rescued us from darkness, brought us into his light. And because of Christ, we can cast off the works of darkness. So put on the armor of light. And 1 Thessalonians tells us what that is. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And we put on this spiritual armor, by putting on Christ. To be awake is to be at war. So put on the armour that King Jesus provides for us. The armour of light is faith, hope and love. Faith in Christ, hoping in Him, in His return, loving Him and loving others as He commands us to do so. You know, put on Christ, wear Him Every day, don't leave your house without wearing Christ. Right? Put him on. He's the one thing in your wardrobe that you always wear. Put on Christ, become more like him in faith, hope and love. And one day he will return. That day is coming, friends. That day is coming. It's nearer and nearer. Therefore, we live in light of that day. Let us become what we are in Christ and let us become what we one day will be. The closing song we're going to sing later on reminds us that it is important for us to know the time. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The sweet, the fair sweet morn awaits. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray together, friends. Dear Father, as we come to you, Father, we pray that you would remind us of the time Help us to know what time it is that we would begin to order our lives according to the time and do what is right for the time. Father, help us to reflect on these things in this moment of quiet. Help us to examine our own hearts. We pray that you would expose us before you, lay our hearts bare. Father, help us to to see how we are living now. If your son were to return now, how would he find us living? 
If your son were, were to return now, would he find that we are living for him? If your son were to return now, would he find that we are hoping in him? That our lives are organized and ordered for his glory, for his gospel, for his purposes. Oh Father, these are searching questions. And we pray that we might not take them lightly, but that you would do a work of grace in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes. Help us to see where we stand in relation to your Son. Precious Father, we thank you again for how you've spoken in your word. We pray that your word will be planted in our hearts. May it bear good fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.